everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we have a fun episode planned. We are going to talk all about our time at the New York Film Festival. It was 17 days of movie going, seeing some directors that we love, all of these new films. I had a great time. I thought it was a ton of fun and made me so excited about a lot of the movies that are coming out this year. It feels like it's been going on for so long, but Mm -hmm. also that's probably just from having commuted up to Lincoln Center and where they play those movies almost every day. And it's Mm -hmm. an amazing experience. I love it. You do really get that festival fever that you had mentioned on previous episodes. I really get that here. And I love it. There are so many Q&As. There's so many free chats. And it's such an exciting time. And the slate is always incredible. I love that it's always so thought-provoking. And whether you talk about it with people there or we saw some together and some separately. But yeah, just a great way to dive into award season. Because I feel like a lot of these here we'll be hearing about in some way, shape, or form for the next few months. Yeah. And... We will also be covering a new release that was also at the New York Film Festival, Todd Field's Tar, in the back half of this episode. And I can't wait to get into that discussion about that wonderful, epic film. So what we'll do today, we're going to run through what we saw. We'll spend some time on these movies, talk about what we liked, maybe what we didn't like, and also note some films that we will be going into a bit deeper later on this season for future episodes. So these are all in alphabetical order. They're not according to preference or anything like that. But the first film that we have here is After Sun. This was directed by Charlotte Wells. She is a newcomer, Scottish filmmaker, got her start at Tisch at NYU. So it was really exciting, I think, to see her new film at New York Film Festival. And this stars Paul Mescal and Frankie Corio. I would actually call it more of a memory piece. And it just goes into this little girl and her relationship with her father as they are on vacation in Turkey. This film, I think, got rave reviews really out of Cannes, where it premiered. And I think it played really well in New York, too. I really liked this movie. It didn't feel like this traditional narrative feature that I've come to expect from A24. I think when we have child actors and their parents, you know, thinking of things like The Florida Project or Eighth Grade, Come On, Come On. Those films, I think, they're playful still, but they have more traditional narrative structures. This one feels a bit more experimental for A24. My sister, it's worth noting who I saw this movie with, this was, I think, her favorite film of the festival. I wasn't quite as high on it as that, but I did really enjoy it and would recommend it. It comes out October 21st here in the U.S. and features a fantastic performance by Paul Mescal. Yeah, seeing him like descend or kind of unravel as he's just experiencing this vacation, this holiday with his daughter is really captivating. It is more of like a mood piece where, again, it's just them together not a ton happens, but there's so much inside their heads that's happening that like the mom is in the picture, but she's not in the movie. And she touches on that for a second, but it really is a thinker. 
like by the end when everything comes together there's a really powerful climactic scene in this like other space this is like very vague but i don't want to give too much away i kind of wish i had subtitles here too the accents are tricky when you're dealing with (laughs) with scots (laughs) yeah and i don't think it was slang but it was like father daughter they were just kind of vibing on their own and in their own world so i think in terms of a24 there was a lot at new york and this is definitely one of the more probably the most unique of their films for the year but yeah i think overall i do recommend it go check it out go support like first time feature filmmakers like charlotte wells i'm excited to see where her career goes from Mm -hmm, here too definitely Okay, next up, we have Armageddon Time, one that we both saw as well. This is directed by James Gray, stars Jeremy Strong, Anne Hathaway, Banks Rapetta, and Anthony Hopkins. This film has a release date of October 28th and is being released by Focus Features. This originally premiered at Cannes, and I do like also throughout this festival, throughout this year, we've gotten a lot of New York movies. So this is set in Queens. And I feel like James Gray has this like deep connection to his childhood for better or worse. This film kind of touches on his really deep relationship with his grandfather, but also the troubled state that he was living in that this country was dealing with at the time. He touches on political themes of like Reagan becoming president and how his family felt about that, but also his culture and being raised Jewish and having this huge family and everyone yelling at the dinner table and having their own opinions and dealing with school and racism at the time and being this troubled kid, just being influenced every which way. I think performance wise, Anthony Hopkins is incredible. He is the heart of the film. I really liked seeing him on screen and we have Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway who, I don't know, Anne is great. It's very much like a traditional mother-father dynamic of like the father is this hard-hitting person and she is there to console him. And I think overall, this was not one of my favorites of the festival. But how did you feel about this movie? What did you think about, I mean, the actors that we all know and love? I think it was kind of hard to see Jeremy Strong outside of Succession too, which we can get back to later on in another movie also. (laughs) Yeah, I think this movie is an interesting one because it's different from what I expected. I think James Gray is always an interesting filmmaker with the types of stories that he tells and the ways that he chooses to tell them. I think that as a coming-of-age film, it is successful in how detailed it feels and how with this central character, Paul, the film is. I really feel like it understands his perspective while also incorporating like really detailed vignettes from his childhood of hard lessons that he experienced and things that he learned. I think as far as performances go, Anthony Hopkins was also the strongest for me. Whether or not I feel like he can do this performance in his sleep is maybe another story altogether, (laughs) but he really did stand out as this grandfather figure who was really able to sit with Paul and teach him those lessons that he needed to learn from his experiences. I thought that Anne Hathaway was good. I wish she had maybe another scene or two to really stand out because I think what she's doing is strong. The hard part is I just always see Anne Hathaway. So when they try to 
like de-glam her or give her this mom look. I just always see glamorous Anne Hathaway underneath, which always keeps me at a distance because I do love her. Jeremy Strong, he will always be Kendall in succession, but what I will say is he sounded exactly like James Gray. When you hear James Gray introduce this film and do the Q&As and speak about it, the accent that Jeremy Strong pulls off in this movie is probably exactly what his father sounded like. So I thought the accent work was good. He also has a really good scene late in the film. Its depiction of racial issues will challenge some viewers, and I can see it being quite a polarizing film for general audiences. Critics, it already is, but I think general audiences will be pretty hot and cold on it. I feel like it has potential to connect with audiences, but as a coming-of-age story for a filmmaker, I feel like Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans and the reaction to that and the craft in that film will just sort of eclipse this one. And I have to note, because I love fonts, you guys are not ready for the title card of this movie and the font that it uses. (laughs) Because I was not, and I wanted to scream. (laughs) It was very much a jarring way to start the movie, especially over a shot of a location that is like very near and dear to him that comes back later on in the film. But yeah, I guess overall, I was expecting worse just from what people had said out of Cannes. I think it was much more digestible than I was expecting. But I think how he tackles the themes... I think are a little simplistic. And yeah, I feel like the last third of the movie is like shot for shot, the 400 blows. And I wasn't really sure why he stuck this in at the end. I mean, I understand it and how he was updating that to talk about other themes like racial issues in the country at this certain point in time. Awards related, Anthony Hopkins does have a chance. I feel like supporting actors pretty open right now and that could happen. I think for him, he would show up for this movie instead of The Sun, which kind of surprised me from our fantasy draft episode when Nathaniel chose him. But it makes sense. I I could definitely see that happening. Anyone else? I I don't think so. And I don't feel like a screenplay could happen either. Those are probably the biggest categories that it could show up in. Yeah, and I think with original screenplay, we do have some flashier contenders that are going to pop up in some bigger movies. One of them we will talk about later in this episode. Really, two of them we'll talk about later in the episode. But I think this movie just has to do really well with general audiences. It does have focus behind it, which is a good campaign machine. Like, they could 100% push it. But right now, I'm seeing Anthony Hopkins also as the strongest possibility for a nomination for this movie. Next up, we have Bones and All by Luca Guadagnino. This stars Taylor Russell, Timothy Chalamet, Mark Rylance. This comes out in theaters limited November 18th and wide on November 23rd. Happy Thanksgiving from your favorite romantic cannibals. I loved this movie so much and You did too, so that's part of the reason I think why we're saving it, and we will do a deeper dive later this season, but just general reactions, I thought this was great. I think it combines everything that Luca does well across genres. You have 
really crushing horror elements that are disgusting. The sound design, oh my god, the cracking and hearing them eat people is incredible, but it's also just this like very romantic journey. It's beautiful. I loved it. My favorite of the fest. I absolutely love this. I can't wait for it to come out wide and to see it again. I feel like audiences will be pretty positive on this too. It is maybe a little harder of a watch than Call Me By Your Name, but I think similarly great soundtrack and score and performances are just through the roof. What Luca is doing, this is very much an amalgamation of Call Me By Your Name and Suspiria to me in terms of like body horror, but also intimate moments and really focusing on these characters. I guess I won't say too much. So... I think this also has a lot of awards potential. We can also save that for later. But yeah, this was amazing. I can't wait for everyone to see this. And then a couple of these you didn't see, but I saw. So I just want to touch on them briefly. The first is Decision to Leave by the great Park Chan-wook, starring Park Hae-il and Tang Wei. This is one of my favorite films from the festival, hands down. It was like taking... Hitchcock and Douglas Sirk with like everything that Park Chan-wook does well and everything that I love about Korean thrillers. This though, it feels more like a romance than a genuine thriller. It actually reminded me a lot of Marnie, if you've seen that Hitchcock film. This film, it follows a detective who works in Busan and he just becomes obsessed with one of his murder suspects. The detective reminded me a lot of like Jimmy Stewart or Joseph Cotton, these men who existed in films of the 40s, the 50s. I loved his performance here, but throughout this movie, he follows this new case that he has where this Korean businessman falls to his death from a cliff when he's rock climbing. And his wife becomes a suspect, the climber's wife, not the detective's wife. Mm-hmm. So he gets just tangled up in all of this as he becomes sort of enthralled with this woman. Tang Wei is amazing. Her performance, I, I don't want to, again, give anything away because it is outlimited in New York and L.A. right now and will be wide on October 28th. So... I think people should go into this one as blind as possible, but it has a very delicate way of unraveling, and it does so in a pretty ingenious two-act structure, and I think it's my directing achievement of the year. It is so well-directed. He's showing off a little bit, but not in a way that's irritating to me. It's like, Mm -hmm. I appreciate him saying, look what I can do. I think I expected it to feel more like a violent thriller and that's not not what it was Mm -hmm. it's very very romantic well this was his first feature since the handmaiden and that's very much of what that was yeah i'm excited i haven't seen this yet but we did mention him earlier on predictions and in the draft so how do you feel right now about his chances in director or if this were in other categories screenplay technicals Mm -hmm. um Director is definitely its strongest outside of international feature, we should say, which this is uh, the South Korean submission for the Oscars. So I'm really, really hoping that this gets shortlisted and then nominated because 
I adore this film. I do think that he has a strong chance of getting in. We talk often about how the director's branch is less populist than other branches in the Academy, and they love their masters. And he is a master who has never been nominated before. And again, this movie is just one directorial flex after another. Everything fits together so perfectly. So I feel like I could see them honoring him. And I'm really hopeful for that. Mm -hmm. I also have to say that this year, Best Actor is such a thin annoyingly thin category where it just is like okay who else are we going to include here people are talking about brendan fraser and they're all over that colin farrell austin butler but then there are just other spots that are there and i don't trust the actors branch especially after last year when they went for javier bardem in being the ricardos and jk simmons in being the ricardos i don't trust them but park Hae-il should absolutely get a best actor nomination I thought he was fantastic here, but it is a very reserved performance. Tang Wei, best actress, is so strong this year and crowded, but her performance is pretty showy. And she, I think, goes into, for me, like the pantheon of women who can carry a romantic thriller and can really just deceive you and surprise you and make you feel just totally enraptured in what they're putting forward on screen so Mm -hmm. that's my plea to the academy if any voters are listening somehow please nominate her for best actress because she gives the second best performance i've seen all year from a woman amazing wow yeah i loved it and then next up we have the eternal daughter I saw this in Venice, but I know you saw this this past week. It's directed by Joanna Hogg, starring Tilda Swinton. Still TBD on a release date, but it did premiere in LA on Friday. Yeah, what were your thoughts on this? We didn't really talk about it on the Venice episode to kind of keep you in the fog of this world that she puts the you literal in. literal fog. <laughs> <laughs> Another very mysterious A24 movie. So moody. What did you think about this one? Unsurprisingly, I loved The Eternal Daughter. It was a movie that felt like it was made specifically for me. I said that also about The Souvenir and The Souvenir Part 2. Here, Tilda Swinton plays mother and daughter, which I didn't know going in. And I'm so, Mm -hmm. so happy that I didn't know that because the moment when that was revealed to me, and I'm sorry to listeners, I just like spoiled that reveal for all of you, even though I said I was happy not knowing that I think it's sort of necessary to discuss the film to say that she plays both mother and daughter very well and they feel like two separate people but also they feel spiritually connected which is how mothers and daughters move through the earth you know my mom and I are essentially doppelgangers of each other my mom looked exactly the way that I look now when she was my age so it hit me in a really really deep way that I wasn't expecting And another connection, Tilda Swinton plays Julie Hart from The Souvenir, but she's Tilda's age in real life, so decades older. And she still has a lot of those qualities that Julie had as a filmmaker in The Souvenir and The Souvenir Part 2. She lacks confidence, she's not sure of herself, but there's a sort of peace in seeing her and knowing that she's still a filmmaker that I found as a fan of those films. And I love gothic horrors. So this is 
it's just your it's a traditional gothic ghost story it feels like it was made in another time it feels like a daphne du maurier novel inspired by nicholas rogue and alfred hitchcock it has vertigo elements in it it has rebecca in it and it's just quiet and has all of the subtle details that make me love joanna hogg and her movies like she just knows how women communicate and how we obsess over the smallest little things and like she incorporates all of these weird trinkets and this bag that Tilda as the mother keeps dragging around that is just so real that I I loved it. It's again like not your traditional narrative feature. It's very moody and not a lot happens but it was the perfect movie for me. So yeah I adored this one and I got to see Joanna Hogg and Kelly Reichert do a talk and it was just it was great. It was why I love this festival so much, getting to see them talk about movies <laughs> together and how they work. Because it's very different from a lot of filmmakers that you've probably heard from in the past. Oh, definitely. I think here, I mean, I think it's generally how Joanna Hogg directs, but she doesn't give you answers. It's very much look at what I'm showing you and you make your own conclusions. It is a ghost story. It is a powerful performance by Tilda Swinton. One that won't get nominated, but is just like when she's talking to herself, you know, at the dinner table. I mean, well, to nobody, you know, they're just kind of switching the camera. It's just so much fun to see her act and work and see how she manages, you know, puts her own relationships and history into this role, but also works with Joanna Hogg. I think she's been in all of her movies. Even her short film from film school, because I learned at this Q&A, this talk, that Joanna Hogg and Tilda Swinton have known each other since they were 11 years old. What? Wow. Yeah. Imagine these like these fierce British women as 11-year-olds. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Tilda was never a child. She's always been Tilda. No. That's sort of what the moderator and what Kelly Reichert said, too. She was like, oh, it's it's odd imagining Tilda as a child. <laughs> but yeah, this was fun and kind of creepily funny also. Like, you don't expect it to be, mm-hmm. but it very much is. This was great. Yeah, definitely go see this. I'm so glad that you're saying to go, you're telling people to go see it. It was one of my highest movies from Venice. I mean, I can say that. Wow. I don't know if that's saying a ton but i definitely wasn't low on this for sure (laughs) i mean you did have blonde and the sun so (laughs) exactly (laughs) and then the next movie that i saw was mia hansen loves one fine morning the stars leia seydoux and pascal gregory so if you remember from last year listeners who listened to us last year bergman island was one of my favorite films of the year that was her previous film i loved it i felt just connected to it on a very very deep level this movie didn't do that for me but i would still recommend it it doesn't have a release date just yet it's still tbd but sony pictures classics is releasing it so we can guarantee pretty much that it will be in theaters at some point it might be a 2023 release but this movie follows leia Sedu. she is a professional translator She's also a single mother, and her father is sick. He's older, so she's taking care of him and dealing with that, dealing with putting him in an assisted living facility, but also she is in this sort of doomed 
romance with a married man. So she's juggling both of these things. I loved Leia in this movie. I thought she was fantastic. And like other films of hers, Mia Hansen Love has this ability to just sort of wallop you at the end. All of the emotions just surge together and you are just hit over the head. And it's a sad movie, but it's also very empathetic and I don't know, it's it's really beautifully made. It just didn't hit me in the same way that Bergman Island did or even Things to Come, which is my favorite Mia Hansen Love movie, but I would still recommend it, um, even just for the performance alone and the way that the emotions just hit you all at once. Her films are just singular experiences in that way. If you give yourself over to them, they will reward you in the end. So would you recommend that I see this or Bergman Island first? I know you like Leah as well, but I would still say Bergman Island because Bergman Island has this fascinating split where you go into Vicky Creeps' character's mind and you see the film that she's creating with mm-hmm. Mia Wasikowska and Anders Danielson Lee that makes the film like very unique and a fascinating autobiographical text. The location in Sweden is also just wonderful. It's just it's just cool to have all the Bergman references there. This was in Paris, though, so I'm not complaining about that. But I think I would pick Bergman Island, even for you. And then another one I saw at Venice that you saw here was Santo Mare, directed by Alice Diop, and release date still TBD. But this has, since we've talked about it last, become the French entry for international feature, which I think is a strong move, the right move. I really want this to get shortlisted and or nominated as well. We kind of talked about it on the Venice episode, so I'll let you talk about what you thought, if you liked it as much as we did. So you and Bennett were right. I loved this movie. This was my first film of the festival. I was floored by the confidence of Alice Diop's direction, having these extended long takes in this courtroom. This film, it's about this journalist named Rama who attends this trial of this woman who murdered her daughter. She just left her in the sand and by the ocean, which is just, it's horribly tragic. It's so sad, but the connections in this film to Medea, and I even thought about Beloved a bit, just this idea of why women murder their children. It's a very overwhelming film. I was I was very emotionally stunned by it, how well it came together. And these two performances of these women, they were fantastic. And the empathy that the filmmaker had for both of these women, it floored me, honestly. And I wasn't surprised by that, but I think that my hype for it, the hype for it was really strong and the bar was very high because... You guys had both told me that I would love it and that it was a type of it was the type of movie that I would love and it still managed to exceed my expectations. So I also hope that this gets nominated. I'm excited that it is the French submission. I think also if you're comparing like some finalists there, I would have selected this over one fine morning for sure. It comes down to the filmmaking and how she's capturing these characters. I still think it's remarkable and it's quiet but so poignant and we also don't get a lot of flashback i think when you do start to understand this story you're like oh shoot i should have paid more attention to it because it's very quick but i like that i like that it is constantly making you think and 
I love the courtroom aspect of it all and how she captures these two women as they're watching each other, as the women are talking about their experiences. I feel like it will have a better chance of making it than Titan last year. It's showing a really strong perspective, but I don't think it is going to be hard on viewers, at least critics. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I really hope so. Next, we have She Said, which we will talk about more in depth later this season. This was directed by Maria Schrader. It stars Carrie Mulligan, Zoe Kazan, Patricia Clarkson, Jennifer Ely, Samantha Morton. Really a fabulous ensemble cast. The release date for this film is November 18th. And this film follows Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, who were the two investigative reporters at the New York Times who broke the Harvey Weinstein story. Um, they interviewed many women who worked at Miramax in the 90s and even up to present day who courageously shared their experiences working at Miramax and decided to go on the record and make this story something that really mattered and that would have consequences for Harvey Weinstein. I was really nervous about this movie because I love movies about investigative journalism. I love All the President's Men. I love Spotlight. And I worried, I think, that it would be a little hokey or too much of Hollywood patting itself on the back. But that was not the case. This really hit me in a deep emotional way. And I was impressed with it. I was particularly impressed with Schrader's direction and the two supporting performances from Jennifer Ely and Samantha Morton, who just knock it out of the park in a scene or two. But what did you think of She Said? Those final title cards came up and I was sobbing. I just couldn't hold it in. The end of this movie really packs a punch and it ends on a really firm note. I was just so happy with how this came out and I haven't read the book. I haven't read the full piece in the New York times, but I feel like I learned a lot too from the account from these two women and how they tackle the journalistic side of it and talking to women and how nobody wanted to come forward on the record, but that there were so many stories to be told. Um, it was very chilling in that way. And I, yeah, absolutely loved Jennifer's performance her character is going through so many things at once and and to put yourself in her shoes is just overwhelming and then we talk about carrie and zoe playing the two lead roles i love their relationship together i love how they're two singular women tackling the story in different ways carrie playing megan who has just had a baby and she's going through postpartum depression is chilling but on the flip side carrie is having so much fun with this role <laughs> There's a scene that you just like want to clap for her. Mm -hmm. The one in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes, thank God. And there's a shot later in the movie. I was just like beaming. I was almost in tears. I was like, please do it. And she did it. And oh, it's so good. I am so excited to talk about this later in the year. And specifically to the release here at the festival, Ashley Judd came out, which was a total shock. And I think her presence in the story really shines as well. It's interesting how Maria uses either stand-ins or the real people like Ashley Judd. Like she's in the movie. She's on Zoom in the movie. But then you have like the Harvey stand-in and other 
actors and I think the way she captures them or these empty used spaces really really well but Ashley was there and there were also other survivors and victims from the scandal and Harvey in the audience and Maria had them stand up and I again I just like lost it I was like this is so much happening at once but just a beautiful moment as well with them talking about it on stage and also Megan and Jody there as well talking with the screenwriter and these actors and director it was such a great experience i love this can't wait for its release in a month yeah i think this is one that people really like too like it is a really difficult subject matter but it's gripping it doesn't really let you go the whole movie and it's just made in a way that i don't think is trying to hurt the audience or like make you feel horrible it's it's really empathizing with these women which i really liked the next movie that I saw was called Showing Up. This is the latest film from Kelly Reichardt, and it stars Michelle Williams, Hong Chow, and Judd Hirsch. Judd Hirsch and Michelle Williams are in two movies together this year, which I think is so fun. <laughs> um, I love Judd Hirsch and Michelle Williams, so I'm happy that they're both getting work with great directors like Kelly Reichardt and Steven Spielberg. Listeners might remember us talking about First Cow, our first year of this podcast, because that was one of my favorite movies of that year of 2020. I loved it so much. And similarly, Showing Up is a very calm film that is just about this woman, Michelle Williams, who's an artist. She also has an administrative role at an art school. And it's just about this week in her life leading up to her ceramics show that she has and all of life's little difficulties. It's definitely more of a me film than a you film. (laughs) That's okay. I loved this one, though. It also hit me in a way that I wasn't expecting, just with its little details. And there's a part in the film when Hong Chao, who is another artist, finds a bird who is injured. And Michelle Williams ends up taking care of this bird. And that's like, that's a through line in the movie. But it's also all about her family and her parents are divorced. She has a brother who's also quite difficult and misunderstood. So there's a lot going into it, a lot of personal drama that I think in another film could feel very low stakes. But you, because of Kelly Reichardt's sensitive direction and the performances that she gets out of her actors, it feels almost profound. I really loved it. I highly recommend. It doesn't have a release date yet. There's a sort of a theme with some of these movies, but it is also A24, so I think we can maybe count on this one coming out in 2023. Right now it says 2022 TBD, but that depends on a lot of things. So I hope sooner rather than later. Do you think it could be a performance that's awarded at like a smaller ceremony like the Spirits? So I don't think it quite has the power of First Cow. I don't think it will connect with critics groups in that way. But you never know. I really liked Michelle Williams in this and really love this movie. So I hope that it can get some awards traction somewhere, whether that's a regional critics group or Indie Spirits, something like that that's smaller. But it almost feels too niche, too for the Reichardt fans Mm -hmm. of the world, which is also perfectly fine with me. I also, the talk I went to with Kelly Reichardt, it was so interesting because she talked about how... Americans love violence and they hate ambiguity and her films 
don't have a lot of violence and they're full of ambiguity. And I love ambiguity in my films. I love when questions are not answered, when you have to sort of think of that for yourself. But she talked a lot about that and about the industry and how, you know, IP and comic book movies, like it's all just very easy. People are used to being spoon fed. And I thought it was a really, really insightful thing that she said. And also just interesting to think of her place within that. But she feels very comfortable, as she described, like being on the fringe of all of that. She doesn't want to do that, but she just commented on how that's what Americans like. And she's just not going to make movies like that, which I respect. Mm -hmm. Next up, we have Stars at Noon. Surprised you haven't seen this. This is directed by... Me too. (laughs) This is directed by Claire Denis and stars Margaret Qualley and Joe Alwyn. It's out now on VOD. This was definitely one of the drier movies that I had seen at the festival. This also premiered at Cannes. It's about Margaret Qualley, who's playing a journalist in Nicaragua in the 80s. And she meets Joe at a hotel bar, not her hotel. Um, And he's like an energy businessman. And there's this like vague aura about what he does very intentionally, which comes back later when we meet Benny Safdie's character, which is very unexpected. Benny Safdie's in this? Mm-hmm. I need to see this movie because, as you know, I do love Claire Denis and all of all of the weird decisions that she makes in her films, but I feel like I, I do need to see this. But please tell the listener also what you told me this movie was going to be called to you or how you were going to refer to it. Do you remember? No. I think you is called it... it Stars at Nap Time. <laughs> stars at Bedtime? or <laughs> Stars at Bedtime, yes. I did not fall asleep. I think the vibe of the movie, it had me intrigued. Like I was waiting for something to happen, but I think I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And I'm not as used to Danny films as maybe you are. I think this is even very different from High Life, which we got a few years ago with Robert Pattinson. Mm -hmm. But I can definitely feel it along the same lines. It's talking about similar things. Definitely like her go-tos of colonialism. There's like a deep disdain for America here. Qualley's journalist character. Also, John C. Riley shows up. He plays her boss of sorts. It's interesting how these relationships develop and how their characters become known. Because that's part of it is like, she's a journalist, but she hasn't done anything and she's trying to leave and her press pass is expired and she's not really writing there. Or when she did, she kind of burned a lot of bridges both with people where she is now and with her company so what happens here is they're trying to escape and it is just harder and harder for them to do that and it's part romance also other aspects that Danny hits on is our sexuality so the relationship between them there are a lot of shots of quality yeah I need you to see this so we can talk about it um it was hard for me. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. Or it's in theaters and it's on VOD, but I feel like I need the theatrical experience mm-hmm. for a Claire Denis film. Oh, yeah. I If I turned this on at home, I would not have finished. I will say that. Oh, no. But I feel like that's a lot of movies, so it's not necessarily just this. But yeah, I think it's giving like similar vibes to Showing Up. So if you like any of these movies, if you like Hog, I think it could fit in very well there. I am a member of the hog pen, the term that I coined for Joanna Hogg fans. 
Okay, let's move on. Our next film is Till. This film was directed by Chinoya Chuku and stars Danielle Deadweiler, Jalen Hall, Whoopi Goldberg, and more. This film is in theaters now, so you can go see it. So this film is all about Mamie Till Mobley. You may know that name because she is the mother of Emmett Till, who was lynched when he visited his cousins in Mississippi in the 50s. I think that people have noted that they don't actually show the lynching, which is notable. But I will give a warning that they do show Emmett's body, and it is really, really graphic. So I just want to give that warning to people before you see it, that this is a very, very tough watch. But it's a very empathetic film again. And I think that the standout for me in the movie was actually Danielle Deadweiler and her performance. She gives a really strong performance as Mamie, and it is her film. The scenes that she's in, like she really, really packs an emotional punch. And there are a couple of scenes in particular that I think people will really remember when they see this movie this year because of just how much you feel her pain. But it is it is a really difficult watch. So I do feel like I need to warn warn listeners if you haven't seen this yet and you have any trepidation, like I don't blame you for feeling that way because it is a really tough subject, but I do think that the movie does a good job of showing what this family went through and you know, the woman who was responsible for this still walks free. Like, she was never held accountable. So it's an important story to tell. And the federal law that made lynching a hate crime didn't go into effect until this year. So it is very timely and very important. But yeah, it's it's a difficult one for sure. I've only heard amazing things about Danielle's performance. So I'm excited in a way to see her in this movie now that it's out. What about Whoopi Goldberg? Does she have potential in supporting? Mm, I would say maybe if she had more to do. The scenes that she's in, though, she's very good. And I feel like, I mean, people in the industry love Whoopi. She's an EGOT. So, like, it's always possible. But I feel like she maybe needed one or two more big scenes to really stand out. But I wouldn't totally rule her out. I think it just depends if voters really like this film. Yeah, I feel like it's sort of the biopic entry. It's not the only one, but it could work for her for being his mother. Next up, we have Triangle of Sadness. This was directed by Ruben Osland and stars Harris Dickinson, Charles B. Dean. This movie is now out in theaters, and it originally opened at Cannes as well and won the Palme d'Or, which is a pretty big statement. It was preceded by, I mean, Parasite has won it, Titan last year. So I think in that way, like, yes, it is a very sharp film. It's a biting satire, very dark comedy as well. It's arranged in an interesting way, and it's saying a lot about the elite and, you know, the 1%. There's a flip that I really, really enjoyed. But I think by that point, there was also just so much excess that it was a bit too much. You know, performance-wise, we didn't have Woody Harrelson on here. He's in less of the movie than I expected, but he has a really strong performance, if you want to call it that. 
I liked him in this. Okay. He <laughs> yeah. plays this drunk captain who ends up talking about communism and Marxism with another of the people on board for quite a while. So even with just like that topic, I think that fits in really well. I don't know if I necessarily see it showing up at the Oscars. And it almost feels like kind of a surprising choice for that Palme d'Or. Yeah. I would love to say that I don't see it showing up at the Oscars, but I do. (laughs) I just think general audiences will really latch on to this movie because it's a timely, relevant satire and audiences tend to like those. I mean, Don't Look Up last year is a perfect example of that. This is better than Don't Look Up, but it was not for me. I... I'm really hot and cold on Ruben Osland. I did not like The Square, which was his last film that did really well with the Academy. And I just, you know, watching this film, I thought of a number of things and reasons why it wasn't for me and why I didn't connect with it. The first is that I think that Ruben Osland's big mistake here, in my opinion, is that he focuses way too much on the lives of the rich people. That will always be less interesting than the lives of the crew members on board. And he proves that this is correct in his film. Woody Harrelson is more interesting. And also Dolly DeLeon, who plays this character, Abigail, who is a cleaner on this luxury yacht. This film has a three-act structure, and her performance really shines in Act 3. But by the time I got there, I just really didn't care anymore because this movie just drags in its obviousness. I wanted to say back to the screen several times, like, I get it. I got it. I understand. Yep. 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 Got it. And there were also moments like the gross out humor. I just, I can't get on board with that. It's just not for me. I had to look away (laughs) from all of the bathroom humor, all of the puking. I was, as someone who gets really bad motion sickness, it was just not, not good for me. And it didn't really say anything new, I don't think. But I did like Woody Harrelson and his obsession with communism. It made me think of Reds. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because he's listening to, at one point, the song that we hear in Reds right before the intermission. Oh, interesting. And did not make that connection. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but I think as far as categories go at the Oscars... I think this has potential in supporting actress. Neon is really pushing Dolly DeLeon. As much as I don't like the movie, I did like her performance. I just think that voters have to get to her performance. But I feel like most people probably won't be like me watching this. They will probably like it, like the rest of the crowd that I saw it with. And I also think it has potential in original screenplay. My favorite film of his will always be Force Majeure. But I do think this will be easier for viewers to watch than The Square. That was so hard for me. Mm -hmm. Seemed so convoluted. But at least here he's like saying something and it's very, very explicit. Yes, he's like bashing you over the head with it. But I think sometimes (laughs) viewers need that. He doesn't leave little to the imagination. And yeah, I 100% was covering my face. I, I saw like maybe one ounce of puke out of the like three tons that he shows so yeah of among other things which when the woman's on the toilet throwing Uh, up i just like couldn't when she's sliding along the floor as the boat is swaying from her own like i don't don't want to say juices (laughs) yeah 
But yes, the third act is great. It's funny. I do really like Dolly's performance. I don't know if she can get in just like from the Academy's perspective, but it would be really interesting if she does. And if she was in the conversation, I would like that. Yeah, me too. And less important than Oscar nominations, but something we have to say. So on our Smasher Pass segment about award season, <laughs> we brought up Harris Dickinson. And I think you said Smash and I said Pass. How do our answers hold up now? I thought I said Pass. Um, I would say Smash here. <laughs> <laughs> he might have his shirt on for like 20 seconds in the whole movie. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, there's a scene early in the movie about money and Mm -hmm. the bill at dinner that's, who it made me realize, like, this would not be a good man for me. Like, when people are very stingy and they're penny pinchers, I don't don't like that. It's not, especially when they have a lot of money. It's a big pet peeve of mine, and I don't think that we could hang. But he was very hot in this movie, so I Mm -hmm. would say smash as well. See, things are changing. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) Next up, we have White Noise by Noah Baumbach. And this we've talked about many times. It was one of my most anticipated movies of the year. We will be talking about this movie in more depth on an upcoming Netflix-related episode where we'll talk about Glass Onion, the new Knives Out film, Bardo, All Quiet on the Western Front, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, We'll just be talking about them as a company and how they factor into the awards awards race because it's different. But just general reactions to white noise. I had fun with it. I called this novel unadaptable. And I think I was wrong a little bit. I did think he almost adhered a little too closely to the text where I think he could have been more creative in some sections. But Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig are a lot of fun in the lead roles. And I love the end credit sequence. So when people watch this on Netflix, I really hope they stick around for that because it features a very fun new LCD sound system song. And it's just, it's wonderful. As someone who loves grocery stores too, I I loved that. I thought it was great. But what did you think? Because you were not familiar with the book, with the text, with all these themes. Did you like it? Was it too weird? It's definitely weird, but I did like it. I think it ends on a really high note that I wanted mm-hmm. like more of that Bombok energy from. I think it just plays differently because it's a bigger budgeted film and he's working with, yes, Darcy's worked with before, but it's just a larger feature. I mean, it's dealing with the apocalypse in a way and both these like big and small themes that are related, yes, to this one couple, but that, again, affect humanity and all of existence with this metaphorical storm that's hovering over this entire city but is relatable in different ways yeah i think that specifically you talk about apocalyptic the covid related metaphors and those parallels i think work very nicely and are very timely and actually are part of what inspired noah baumbach to take on this adaptation whereas other bits of the text and other parts of the satire didn't work as well for me And that's okay. I think it's still, it was sort of an impossible film to live up to my expectations. So with what he gave us, I think he did pretty well. And it's interesting because Noah, I think, is sort of a mean filmmaker when it comes to depicting relationships. 
you think of like squid and the whale mm-hmm. marriage story margo at the wedding like he doesn't depict relationships in the kindest way and here he's a little bit warmer on marriage and i wonder if that's greta gerwig's influence coming through <laughs> <laughs> I loved her. It's so nice to see her back on the big screen, even with that mm-hmm. humongous perm that she has, those curls. Important hair, it's... as DeLillo says in the book. <laughs> um, and yeah, she has a really big moment later in the movie. I loved her little monologue. Last but not least is Woman Talking, also a movie we'll be talking about later this season once it's released. It has a release date for December 2nd. It's directed by Sarah Polly. And it's a huge, huge ensemble cast. We have Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Frances McDormand, Judith Ivey, Sheila McCarthy, Ben Wishaw, and many, many more. So this movie so far has done really, really well. I totally agree with all of that hype and all the critical reviews. I probably liked it more than I even expected just hearing about what happens in the movie. And not much happens. It's very dialogue heavy. Which I didn't mind. We can talk about that on our later episode and get into some of those quotes and themes and how these women are interacting together. I think it's just fascinating to see all these different characters, these actresses bringing their own voices to these women. And seeing them together was just such a unique experience. Seeing Frances again, you know, she's producing the film and... It was fun during the Q&A hearing about their experiences with her and why she picked up the book and what Sarah brought. The subject matter is really tough, and I think she captures it in a way that is telling but isn't overly gruesome. Again, it's focusing on the women and their legacy and how they are going to deal with the trauma that everyone has experienced. And I think it's a beautiful story. I was really touched by the end and... The collective journey that everybody goes on. I need to see this movie again. I think that's the first thing I'm going to say. My expectations were too high for this movie. And sometimes that happens where that can hurt you when you go see a film and you think it could be your favorite one. And it's just not. I liked it. But there was something about the dialogue that felt a little too theatrical for me that kept me at a distance. I felt like I didn't know any of these women. There are specific lines in the dialogue that, yes, are very impactful, but they almost feel like they're coming from, like, from a TED Talk or, like, these women aren't real women. They're all just avatars that are created to get different points across. It's like trying to cover all of your bases. Mm -hmm. So I did just generally have issues with the screenplay because I just didn't feel like some of these characters were real women. And that made me sad. I think that part of it comes with the structure feeling like a parable. And their language is going to be like that. It's going to feel dramatic and poetic and lyrical. But that was, again, just a barrier for me. So I think I just need to see it again. The ensemble is great. Judith Ivey and Sheila McCarthy are my favorite. These Canadian veterans, they bring so much wisdom to the roles. And I loved Hilder's score. And I did think it was very well paced for being pretty much in a single location. Awards potential, though, is through the roof. Definitely a lot of potential, which I think will help with the second viewing. Um, I'm curious about general reactions to this film as well. Me too. Okay, now it's time to review 
my favorite film of New York Film Festival and one of your favorite films, Tar. Todd Field returning after his 16-year hiatus since Little Children. Description here, set in the international world of Western classical music, the film centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered one of the greatest living composer-conductors and first-ever female music director of a major German orchestra. This stars Kate Blanchett, Naomi Morlant, Nina Haas, and Mark Strong. This film blew me away. I am so excited to review it today and just talk more about it, what I loved, but... What did you like about Tar? Um, everything. It's <laughs> a masterclass performance by Kate Blanchett. It's an incredibly detailed screenplay written by Todd Field. It's a longer film and doesn't feel like it. I mean, it accomplishes everything it sets out to do, and it captures this specific moment in time, but also her character really, really well. We could probably break down certain scenes and lines for hours and hours. But this is another film that like demands to be seen over and over again. There's so much to mm-hmm. take away and you can also miss a lot just from a blink or like if you miss one line. I mean, there's so much put into every single moment of this film. And I loved it. I love all the relationships. Nina Haas plays her wife and that is just so complex and the way that that develops over the film as this newcomer comes into Lydia's life and kind of takes over. This was such a delight and I'm glad it's already out now. I'm kind of an earlier release, but Mm -hmm. I hope it sticks around. Yeah. I love movies about evil women who are obsessed with their jobs. That has very much always been like a thing that I've loved. Whether it was Disney villainesses up to like Faye Dunaway and Network is a good example of a movie that I really love that I think fits that sort of character. One of the brilliant things of the script is that it is so detailed in establishing this specific world. We have a lot of like inside baseball classical music speak. They talk about Gustav and Alma Mahler, this marriage that failed between this composer who Lydia, she's planning on conducting his fifth symphony coming up and it incorporates like that relationship it talks about Schopenhauer and Bach and like all of these parts of the classical music world and it does so in such creative like sly ways I love how the film opens with Lydia Tarr in a Q&A with Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker at the New Yorker Festival where he's just sort of reading out her litany of achievements mm-hmm telling everyone she's an EGOT, that she established this fellowship for young women in conducting. And while it's doing this, we're seeing things like her suit being tailored and details of all of these records that she has scattered across the floor. And it's just such a brilliant way to establish this very specific world that I didn't know a lot about going into this movie. I'm not a classical violinist or anything like that. I don't have a lot of familiarity with Juilliard or conductors, things like that. And I feel like this movie like informed me in a really creative way. And I'm going to use the K word. It felt Kubrickian in its <laughs> weirdness and its specificity and like how epic it was, but while also remaining truly bizarre at times. 
Yeah, I think that's true in terms of the character, but also the mood and the setting that we're in. I do love that introduction to her. I mean, hearing that she's an e-gotter, I was like, we're talking about Lydia Tarr? Like, wow, we're getting into a very different world. And like, you knew she was just the best of the best. And just hearing about what Kate Blanchett did for this role, like learning German and scenes where she is conducting, like is actually her conducting an orchestra. Like none of this is easy to do, let alone the instruments. And it's so fascinating. God, every second that we see her acting on screen, she has so many lines, but just to see her expressions and how she incorporated these little ticks into Mm-hmm. Her persona is just incredible. And that's some of what I want to see again is not only that, but like, what did I miss? Or, or like, how did she fit all of this together? I think this may be my favorite performance of hers ever. I think it's her boldest and her biggest too, which helps. But she's just so fascinating and wonderful and everything at the same time. Mm-hmm. All at once. <laughs> Everything, everywhere, all at once. (laughs) Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tarr. (laughs) You know, every single year I have a new obsession, a new film that just stays in my brain or a performance I can't get over. And this is going to be that this year. I mean, there may be more coming, which is exciting. There's still a lot I have to see. But like you said, I mean, all of her choices in this role are so unique and it reminded me a lot of Daniel Day-Lewis and Phantom Thread where for me that performance was so odd the voice was so specific his mannerisms were so strange that I felt okay this has to be based on a real person there's no way that this is a fictional character this has to be based on a real person they had to have watched footage of a person and mimicked it No, like this is a fully fictional, invented character that Todd Field came up with for her. And she Mm -hmm. fully embodied her. And not to be like this, but it's just rare to see women in roles like this where they're, I don't know, just allowed to be big and bold and mean and scary and smart and all of these things, well-dressed, rich. Like she has all of these characteristics that so many male characters have had over the years mm-hmm. that like the Gene Hackmans, the Daniel Day Lewis's, the Pacinos, like the Denzel's like our greatest male actors have all had so many opportunities to play characters like this. And a lot of times women in awards conversations are stuck in these supportive mother or wife roles. They don't get to take these big swings and, make these types of creative decisions and I don't know it was just really cool to see I love this performance so much and it's one of my favorite performances by any actor in years like not to I don't want to be hyperbolic I try not to be but this is just it's in another class altogether like I'm I really am obsessed with it I mean I left the movie and was like top 10 performances of all time easily and I still feel that way it's a big statement but she really does take it there and again it's every single second it's bringing the comedy it's her going to the school and harassing her child's bully in the courtyard (laughs) it's in german that's the best part of it too (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm Petra's father. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then the antics and later on in the film and, you know, people come over and say she's being too loud in her apartment and she just goes nuts. And then quieter moments with her wife and her child. And there are just so many. I don't know where you want to start if you have favorite scenes you want to talk about or the other performances as well. So just to start with other scenes, I really love every single scene when she is conducting. There's a specific transition, and I know you probably mm-hmm. know exactly what I'm going to say, where the volume oh, yeah. just intensifies, and we have this low-angle shot of her conducting. I have chills thinking about it right now. Part of it is because, like, Mahler's Fifth is beautiful and hits you like that, but it is just, like, you just see her full scope of power. It's crazy. It's so, so good, and... I feel like when she's conducting, that's when we see those unique choices that she was able to make. Like she's almost like she's dancing or like it's a very, very physical performance in the subtlest of ways. And the scenes when she's conducting, that's when I feel that most specifically. It's hard because we don't want to get into spoilers, but I also really love how this film is so ambiguous. They introduce this character, Krista Taylor, who... Is sort of like a ghost. I always use this example in films, but it's really impactful, I think, when filmmakers use the device like Rebecca, where there's this shadow hanging over the film of a character who you never really get to know. She's just sort of there in the ether. Mm -hmm. And you know that there was some sort of fraught relationship between Lydia Tarr and Krista Taylor, and you never know all of the details. And I love that because I love being able to draw conclusions based on her behavior rather than someone just spelling it all out for me. That to me is incredibly boring. If you're going to answer all of the questions that you ask in the movie, I don't care. That's not what film is for. I want to be able to see what something is like in the real world. In the real world, it's thorny. It's challenging. It's ugly. We never know the answers to those questions. So I don't need them in my film either. And I think thinking of the potential downfall of a character is something that's always interested me. I love rise and fall narratives in literature and film, and this one is no exception. I also think that this movie, it's not a Me Too movie. It's not like she said. It is a movie, though, that I think does question and bring up cancel culture and everything that has to do with that in fascinating ways. I love that this movie condemns Lydia, but it doesn't um, take a clear stance. Like, this is the moral of the story. I like how it makes you think and leaves you in uncomfortable positions as you're thinking, you know, what would I do in this situation? You know, some things that she does are terrible, and you know that, and other things are embellished to add fuel to the fire. So it really puts you in a difficult spot to think, what is too far? That's a really provocative conversation for the time that we're living in right Mm -hmm. now. And the film kind of just goes through these scenes without making an emphasis on them, which I think helps in, you know, you making your own conclusions about how the impact she has as a public figure and like this big personality, how she affects other people like in the classroom, which yes, does come back 
in a way, but it's a moment that doesn't like hit you over the head with she's verbally abusing this kid, but at the same time it does. So it makes you question like what her intentions are and if she is evil, like I think the simple answer to that is no and that she's a complex human being, but at the same time she like doesn't have a filter and she's not mm-hmm. being okay in settings where yes like in the modern day everything is filmed and how do you navigate that and how do you present yourself and she doesn't really paint a pretty picture most of the time but i think that's the beauty in how todd captures this character and how kate portrays her too well in that scene i mean i i have a story from when i saw this movie the second time right by juilliard a few mm. blocks away And my crowd was a combination of students and older people. And the scene that you're talking about was this like very interesting case study because in this scene, if you're listeners, what we're talking about, Lydia Tarr, she guest lectures at Juilliard and a student named Max who describes himself as BIPOC and pangender says that he won't play Bach. Because why would he care about the music of a white guy who sired 20 children, is what he says. And she loses her cool, she loses her patience, and it gets at this, I think, generational divide in attitudes, but also something that is taking place in the world of classical music right now, and in plenty of art forms. Like, it's the classic separate the art from the artist conversation, for sure. But when this moment happened in my theater and she berates him and scolds him, people in my theater clapped. Wow. The young people, the students, or the old people? The older people around me clapped. (laughs) I was like, I have to clock this scene because I need to just see what happens because the scene is so... It is funny, but it's uncomfortable. People clapped. And then a lot of the young people were like moving uncomfortably, fidgeting in their seats. I was like, that's what the scene is supposed to do. It's supposed to create a conversation. It's provocative. It is controversial. Like, that's what I want in my movies. I don't want something that's like, this is the moral of the story. I need to be morally good. What lesson am I teaching here? I want something that's like, no, this is how people in the real world act. I could envision this happening in any classroom. Like, that sort of frustration Mm -hmm. that comes up and how people can respond to things differently. And how often do people who you know, have that sort of hubris, how often do they behave like that? I think it's sort it's sort of it's an essential scene to like establish the difference in attitudes, but also to show like who she is as a character, which I think is fascinating. And this is when we get her calling herself a U Haul lesbian. So it's also <laughs> hilarious and I think it is a very expressive film, like in terms of the audience and reacting. I love like how much I was laughing, but also shocked and just wide-eyed to see what she was going to do next. You never really get a firm grasp on that. But I think the timeline of this and her eventual downfall, you do start to understand what's happening. And when she's losing it, she's Kate Blanchett. She takes it there. She absolutely is just out of 10. And her performance reminded me of Blue Jasmine, her Oscar-winning performance. I mean, she loves doing that, I think, and I love watching that just as much. I just, I feel like Todd Field, in his 16 years away from making movies, it's really clear, I think, that he's been observing the ways that 
art criticism and conversation has changed. And this is his way of creating something that, yes, fits into that, but also is commenting on that. He takes this woman and is like, what, you know, what can happen to a figure like this? And is there a place for figures like that anymore in this day and age with technology the way that it is and with attitudes the way that they are? It almost feels like he's saying celebrity is dead as you knew it. But then also at the same time, he's encouraging us to like lift up Kate Blanchett because we're like, look at what she did. She's incredible. She's amazing. We need to like put her on this pedestal. It's cool. I love when art makes you think that way. But in the time away, he's really, really observed not just how people talk about art and how that conversation is changing and how a lot of people think it needs to reflect today's political climate. Nothing can be quote unquote problematic. He's also been really observant to the types of people who can harm others and who can burn the world all down. So I like that this is his way of taking that information that he's absorbed and you know creating something that comments on that, but also just it doesn't give answers. It invites conversation, which I will always, mm-hmm. I'll always love art like that. And then as far as supporting performances go too, I think Nina Haas and Naomi Morlant are both fantastic in this movie. They have much subtler performances than Kate Blanchett. They're not choking you for 158 minutes like she is but I think they still like really know these very mysterious women in her orbit she keeps her circle very small like the circle close to her but you know they just they have a lot of skeletons in their closets Mm -hmm. I think what I like about the supporting performances and their relationships with Lydia too is that we don't really get a lot of backstory we understand who they are and I think Mm -hmm. in the time that we are with them, it's really telling. We understand everything. But also, like with Noemi, who plays her assistant, who is also a conductor and hoping to be promoted, I guess it's all in terms of the Krista character and that story that comes out. Noemi does a great job at telling us who this person is without having to understand a lot of that backstory. There aren't many flashbacks, again, which I like in this sort of storytelling. And then with Sharon, we don't meet her until we get to Berlin and their main house. Which is beautiful, by the way. I love love the brutalist architecture. I'm obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. Like, no color anywhere. (laughs) Oh, I want to live there. (laughs) It's all stone. Like, it's beautiful. Yes, I love love the spaces Mm -hmm. that we're in. Later on is when I really like it because we start to see Sharon, Nina working in her mind and seeing how Lydia is treating this other musician and giving her this privilege. And she's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? But it's all just with a glance. And I mean, there's some really fun moments with her as well in the orchestra. When I think about Nina Haas too, so much of that like history to their relationship, her being in that orchestra is so interesting because that's like another layer to... Lydia Tarr's behavior and like who she brings into her orchestra, who she, you know, can manipulate. Haas proves in this film that Sharon, this character, she can hold her own against Lydia. They're an even match. Lydia might think she always has the upper hand, but there's a lot that Sharon brings to this relationship. And I think that 
Nina Haas, which is also just like very inspired casting to put Nina Haas and Kate Blanchett together. I really love that. I really love watching their dynamic and being able to, without backstory, like to see all the history of their relationship in a glance. It's so, so good. I just love like these dark epics about troubling characters. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's very much like a subgenre for me. So talking about Oscar potential, I think there's a lot here. Mm-hmm. Do we think it's too dense for Academy members? <sighs> that's so hard because my first inclination would be to say yes, but I think that it has the timely thing going for it. You know, it's it's a movie about what ha- what can happen to a prominent person. And I think that can sometimes be like catnip for the industry. I think they can really, really latch onto that. I also don't think that this is a movie like Spencer, for example, where it's cold and keeps you at a distance and maybe is just getting an acting nomination. It doesn't feel like that. Despite how it can feel very like intellectual and pretentious at times, I think it's self-aware of that. And I think that the core of it, of being an acting showcase and about a topic that they can get behind and relate to and that maybe scares them, I think that that can work. The other big thing that we have to think about is that this is the movie this season that so far I think has had the most unanimous praise from critics. The critics who love it, love it, save a Richard Brody. (laughs) So I don't know. I think that gives it potential to win big prizes at like the New York Film Critics Circle, the LA Film Critics Association. And when that happens, that typically means nominations from Mm -hmm. the industry too. I think in technical categories, I think that Hilder's score could really get in. I know she has two. She has Women Talking also, and Women Talking is great. I love that score so much. But here, this is a movie about a composer. This comment that I'm about to make is not to disparage Hilder. It's aimed at the Academy voters. I wonder how many of the Academy voters will think Mahler's music that's incorporated into this movie is part of her score and will vote for it because they're like, wow, the classical music in this movie is brilliant. Score. (laughs) I kind of took that in the opposite way of like, will they think the score, even though it is eligible, will they think that there's too much of old material and like they won't be able to distinguish Mm -hmm. what's actually Hilder's? I feel like that could be working against it. But again, it's a great score. I feel like women talking she would have a better time getting in with that but i would also love a double nom you know no woman has done that before and she is so deserving and i mean hilder is named in this movie specifically as a composer which i think Mm -hmm. is a really cool nod so i really need them both to come out so i can listen to them separately too well you know what's happening with the score you know the release plan have you heard this They're putting it on vinyl and making the cover Lydia. Oh my god. Just vinyl? Oh, they might do a CD or something too, but I'm getting the vinyl (laughs) and framing that thing. (laughs) Have it signed by Lydia. I wonder if... Oh my god. How fun would that press be? Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think technical. I think above the line. I have eight categories listed just off the bat that I think it could. I think even editing where it's like very unassuming... Mm -hmm. But the pacing is so strong in this movie. It's long, but it doesn't feel that way. And you just have this creeping feeling throughout that gets bigger and bigger. And 
there are a lot of long takes. Like even in the beginning, mm-hmm. when we're talking in that New Yorker festival, the longer the take became, I was more and more in awe of Blanchett being able to recite all of these references, this very complex screenplay. So I think that adds to it. So I would love to see editing. Some other, I mean, we I we too. touched on the house, but the production design I think is beautiful. This like the look of this movie is like what I want my life to look like. It is so just, it's just so, so beautiful. I love the design. We passed through the kitchen. I was like, I need that kitchen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all the lighting and everything, yep. the furniture. Ugh. And even her separate Berlin apartment that she mm-hmm. has for rehearsing. And that's even gorgeous. Like, I love it. Apartment for sale for original song. Please, oh, Academy, wow. shortlist this. Where was that? When she sings with the accordion. Oh, my God. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> but yeah, even as big as picture director, I think those are very likely. One more technical thing that could come up especially at guilds for contemporary is costume design the costume designer is bina daigler who was nominated for mulan a few years ago and mulan obviously the costumes in that are much more aligned with what gets nominated but i did love the costumes in this and Mm -hmm. think that that's pretty significant work as well but they'll probably fall out in favor of something more period but wanted to shout them out just in case As far as director and screenplay go, I think that Todd Field being away for 16 years could really be good for the Academy. Like, it's the return of Todd Field. Like, he never makes movies, so you need to honor him when he makes them. His movies also get nominated in The Bedroom and Little Children, both of which I don't like as much as Tar got nominations in major categories. So Mm -hmm. I feel like... They'll honor him, and again, writing his first original screenplay, I feel like it could pop up. And it is a showy movie for a director. I don't say that in like a pejorative way. It's just, I think it's something that the director's branch will embrace. Mm-hmm. I can totally see it. And now our queen, Kate Blanchett. I don't want to say she's winning already, because I do like no, this I know. battle that we have, really between Michelle Yeoh and Kate, but... God, this is a performance that I will come back to time and time again. It's just phenomenal. I would love to see her win again. Do I want Michelle to get a nom and maybe a win too? You know, spread the wealth, yes, but this this is it. Yeah, I never call things locks. I'm not doing that. This is no exception to that. But I will be thrilled if she wins for this. It's guaranteed, I think, to be my favorite win of the night if it happens. Mm-hmm. I think as far as a nomination goes, it's just like, it's very unlikely to me that that wouldn't happen because she's well-loved in the industry. She's been recognized before, and this is a true unstoppable performance. There's no way you can watch this movie and not think she's giving everything she has for this character. And it's big. And the acting branch likes big. They like actors going for it. And I I don't really have a person who I think they will rally around who isn't her yet. Michelle has a compelling case. I think both Michelles actually have compelling cases. I think of the Fablemans really is like the big Mm -hmm. threat to win everything. Like her being in lead. Like she could come along for the ride. But yeah, right now 
Kate is just undeniable to me. I love this performance. For me, it's giving Olivia Coleman in the favorite. It's just a complete transformation. I could see it like coming through at the end of award season. And I loved that role so much. I just loved Olivia's performance. So for a personal favorite to win always is an achievement and like a nice cherry on top of the Oscars ceremony, which happens, but not that frequently. So yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be mad if she won. And I think just quickly with supporting, I could see a situation where if this movie is a really big contender, Nina Haas gets nominated at BAFTA randomly. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, there she comes. Like she wouldn't get SAG or Golden Globes, but there she is on Oscar nomination morning. Like I wouldn't be shocked. But I think in order for that to happen, the movie has to do really, really well. Yeah, maybe as a partly European production, I could see her getting in more so there I think it would be very hard for Nina to get in at the Oscars it also depends on you know the big picture contenders that are going to show up in multiple categories we don't know what Babylon is like still I Mm -hmm. don't know about supporting for that either but again I think even just from women talking that's a big chunk and Nina's gonna have to really fight She really hasn't so far in terms of like other categories or other actresses that are, especially in lead. It just feels like a bigger uphill battle for her. I agree. And I think we know the answer, but if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I mean, Todd Field is not far behind, but yeah, it's Cate Blanchett. It's entirely her movie. She is the star. I'm curious at mm-hmm. like what percentage she is in it because it is a lot. Oh my god, the screen time has to be through the roof. <laughs> yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. It might be longer or as long as Vivian Lee and Gone with the Wind. It's probably close. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I love that. We just get every second of her and that's all I wanted. That's all you want from this movie. Mm-hmm. So it's very deserved. It's Kate Blanchett. What about for you? It would be... Kate Blanchett for me as well for best actress. So Vivian Lee was in Gone with the Wind for two hours, 23 minutes, and 32 seconds. I think Kate Blanchett might be in more of Tar with a two hour, 38 minute runtime. I need someone to calculate it for us, but I think she might take the cake. It has so many surprises hidden within it, and it's just, it's what you want from an actor, and it's the type of performance you just rarely, rarely see. So. I would also say Kate for Best Actress. Amazing. Well, New York Film Festival is over, but plenty of movies to come. We still have a handful that we need to see. It's always a magical time, and it's been a rush of two weeks. Hopefully, we'll get a breath before we have to like dive in again, but this was great. I love talking about these like 10-plus movies. It's a, it's a lot to see in a week or two when you have to digest and actually think about all of these heavy movies in a good way. I encourage everyone to go see Tar. It is out right now in Limited, so in New York and LA. And then it just expanded to a couple of other cities too, like Chicago, DC, and it's going wide October 21st. So when our episode airs, my parents already have their tickets. I'm so excited to hear what they think. (laughs) And next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be celebrating spooky season with a brand new game called the Oscar Wilde Horror Oscars. We will be nominating and selecting winners in 
the following categories, all four acting categories, director and picture, and the nominees can only be from horror films. The actors, directors, like movies, they don't need existing nominations. So you can pick Ruth Gordon if you want to for Rosemary's Baby, but you don't have to. You can expand it if you want. The only rule is that each film that you select, just to spread the wealth a little bit, can only receive three nominations from you. I'm okay with that because there's a lot of horror. That just so we, we can talk yeah. about more mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. That hasn't been nominated. So cool. I like that. Yeah, I'm excited to see what our lists look like and who we nominate and who our winners will be. Spoiler alert, it might be who we're covering on After Dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a previous winner for another film. She can get a Best Actress win now. Well, thank you all for listening. We covered so many movies today. If you have like any questions about any of these or want recommendations, just let us know. We're always excited to... Like share more about the movies that we love. And yeah, I can't wait for the fall and the winter and all of the new movies coming our way that we've still yet to see. And feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on socials at Oscar Wilde Pod. You can also find us at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde for more content. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye.